One of my all-time favorite stories is told of the pirate who walked into a bar and the bartender said, Hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. What happened to you? You look terrible. He said, What do you mean? I'm fine. He said, Well, what about that wooden leg? You didn't have that before. And the pirate said, Well, we were in a battle at sea and a cannonball hit my leg, but the doc fixed me up and I'm fine, gave me this leg, and sure enough, I'm doing good. He said, Yeah, but what about that hook? Last time you were in, you had two hands. He goes, well, we're in another battle and jumped on board an enemy ship and we got in a sword fight. And next thing you know, somebody just took a sword and swiped my hand right off. But the doc, he gave me this hook and, you know, fixed me up and I'm doing fine. He said, what about that eye patch? He said, you had two eyes last time you were in here. He goes, well, we were out at sea one day and I went out and I was up on the deck and I looked up above and I heard some birds squawking. And next thing I know, one of those birds dropped some doo-doo in my eye. He goes, you lost an eye from bird doo-doo? He said, well, actually, no, it was the first day with my hook. <laughs> you know, one, one of the uh, many things I like about jokes or stories is that they make me think. You know, and as, as human beings, you know, God has created us with the ability to reason, to think things through, to examine the facts or the evidence, and then to come to a conclusion as to what it means and what action that we should take in our life. We have the ability to reason, the ability to think. Some of you are still trying to think about what that meant, that story. And that's all right, because about noon you'll be laughing, you'll be like, oh, that was funny. But, um, you know, as we've been going through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, You know, it's evident that Dr. Luke is laying out compelling evidence as to the true identity of Jesus. By his miraculous actions and his authoritative teaching, his fulfillment of prophecy, Luke became convinced that Jesus is indeed the Christ, God's long-awaited promised Savior of the world. Luke presents the facts. He challenges us to think about it. As a doctor, as a physician, he opens up his, his uh, inspired uh, recorded words of the life of Christ by saying that he was an eyewitness, and the word eyewitness means to do an autopsy. He was examining the evidence. He was examining everything that, that Jesus said and that Jesus did, and he examined it in light of what God had promised in the Old Testament. And he looked at all of it and he came to a preponderance of all the evidence and came to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, the long-awaited promised one of God, the only Savior the world will ever know. The Bible says that there's no other name or authority given to men under heaven by which men can be saved from the tragedy of our rebellion before God. The sin that entered into the world when Adam chose to rebel against God and all of us with that birth defect, that congenital birth defect called sin nature, come into the world shouting no, and we continue to shout no at God's presence and His authority and His existence in our life because we don't want someone telling us what to do if it's different than what we want to do. And so it really comes down to the root of the matter is that we're all in rebellion against God. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 11, verses 14 through 26... In this passage where we will read of yet another miraculous sign, we'll examine the passage, we'll think about it, and hopefully take the appropriate action. In Luke 11, starting with verse 14, we read these words. It says, And as he was casting out a demon, and it was dumb, it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. 
Then he goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. You know, in this passage, we'll note three things as are outlined before you. First of all, we'll see in verse 14 that Jesus' abilities convince the multitudes as to his true identity. The second thing is their accusations challenged his authority. And the third thing is that his answers confronted their thoughts. And we'll look at each one of these. We'll take the first one. It says that we were told in verse 14, his ability convinced the multitudes. If you'll notice that he was casting out a demon and it was dumb and it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke and the multitudes marveled. We're told as we look at this that Jesus cast out this demon and the response by the multitudes who saw it, they, they marveled at what they saw. They, they were wondering as far as who this man was and how he could do the things that he did. And all through Luke's gospel account, you'll notice that Luke has a tremendous focus or a specific focus on humanity, specifically the ailments of humanity. As a doctor, as a physician, it, it captures his attention, you know, how Jesus dealt with the affirmities of his day. You know, as we go through this, Jesus' healings of various human ailments, you know, created quite a media stir. There was a rumor, and the rumor began to spread, and the word got on the streets about what this man, this man from Nazareth, what he could do that no one else in human history had ever been able to do. You know, and as a doctor, Luke, understandably, was amazed at the power Jesus displayed over disease and even death. You know, one of the many things that I'm learning as I ride the cancer coaster is that the majority of folks who are in the medical profession are in it to help their patients overcome, you know, their afflictions, their physical pain and their physical affliction of some sort. You know, there's a fascination with the complexity of the human body and there's a driving passion to gain a better understanding. I sense this in the people that I've gone to see and the counsel that we've sought out and the treatments that we've received so far. There's a desire and the, the, the part of those in the medical profession to truly help. And those who are in it, the majority of them are in it because they want to help people. And that there's no other explanation for the hours that they put in and the suffering that they endure on the part of their own patients. And yet at the same time, it's also obvious to me that there's a reason it's called the practice of medicine. And uh, some of you get frustrated by the practice of medicine. You, we look to people and we look to people as if somehow or another we believe them to be God and they're not. There's only one God. And yet at the same time, he has given gifts and talents and abilities to each of us in, in different ways to serve one another and to serve him ultimately. But at the end of the day, we need to understand and recognize that, you know what, we're all human beings and we use the expertise that we have in whatever area it is to the, to the best ability that we have. But, you know, it's pretty evident that there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, of, of frustration when there's not an answer, when there's not a cure, where there's not a definitive course of action to take. And, and some of us go in and, and we think, you know, that they should be able to tell us something uh, and, and we become discouraged or disappointed. But at the end of all that, like I've mentioned many times, is that, that, you know, when God takes everything else away from us in our life, it's only then that we realize that God is all we really need. You know, we, we pursue those courses of action and, and we go to different people and we seek out counsel and those are all the right things to do. We talked about how we should ask of God, how we should seek, how we should knock. There's a progressive nature that goes along with our prayer life. We ask of God to give us wisdom, the Bible says, and He will. We seek those who God would bring into our life that could maybe give us answers and there's humility involved in the fact that we don't know everything and we have to trust other people and we continue to knock and God says it'll be opened unto us. And so as we go through this, you know, we, we need to recognize and understand that there's only one God and ultimately we need to trust in Him and not get frustrated at the inability of people around us to answer the most, you know, difficult of all questions, but to thank them for, for what they try to do. But at the end of all of it, whatever we choose to do is because God is leading us and we trust Him in that leading, in that direction. You know, Luke was fascinating by what was going on because, you know, here was a doctor who recognized that he couldn't heal leprosy. Here was a doctor who realized that, you know, he couldn't take a paralytic man and make him walk who had never walked before, who was paralyzed for life. Here was a man who understood that he couldn't do anything with a man with a withered hand. And he was watching this and seeing this and he was in awe by this. Here was a man who watched Jesus raise uh, Peter's mother-in-law who had a deathly fever. She was on the brink of death and Jesus touched her and she rose immediately and began to fix some supper. And, and, and he's watching all this and we get to watch through his eyes and, and through the spirit 
Spirit of God as He inspires the Word of God. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All these are given to us as examples so that we understand what God would have us become in this life and the direction that we need to go. We saw all of these things and, and He saw Him cleanse a leper. He saw Him heal a paralytic. He saw Him heal multitudes of various diseases where they were coming to Him all day long with various afflictions. And He was in awe of the fact that Jesus could heal all of these people and he was, you know, basically clueless as to what to do. And yet he, he studied his whole life. Medicine. He studied his whole life to help people. And he recognized how limited he was. Stop and think about it. I don't know what ailments that you have. We all have them. And you go to somebody who's a specialist. And they, and, they, and they specialize in one specific field. And they've spent their whole life studying one thing. And at the end of the day, they only have a limited understanding of that one thing. Jesus understood it all. Jesus, as our creator, understands everything. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're told through Scripture that not only did He heal people, but He also, the crescendo, rose to the level where He raised them from the dead. He took us through a progressive step-by-step. Not only can He heal fever, a withered hand, a paralytic, various diseases of all sundry types, but then He brought it to the ultimate of all ultimates. He can raise the dead. Jarius's daughter, the centurion's servant. We look at the healing from a distance. We look at the widow of Nain's son rising up from her pallet, his pallet or that coffin as they were led out to bury his body. And Jesus raised him from the dead. The very word of God that spoke the universe into the existence said, Son, arise. And he arose. Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. And it's a good thing he said Lazarus because everybody would have. I always liked that. You know, it was very specific. You know, but if he said all the dead in Christ shall rise first, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we who are alive will be caught up with them in the air and we will be with them always, that God, Jesus Christ, has the ability to raise the dead. And so we have hope like the rest of the world that has no hope because we know when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. We know, we read the end of the book, we know how it all turns out, we know what's left, we know what's to come. And so we don't fear death, and that's why David wrote as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he didn't fear any evil because he knew God was with him. And so Luke, as a physician, was taking all of this into account, and this crescendo built up to where here was one more sign, one more evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and and, and what he is shouting to you and me, and what I shout out to you is this, think about it. Think about it. Think about the evidence. Think about what he did. Think about who he is. Think about the difference that he has made in this world. If you've gone to see the movie, The Passion of the Christ, think about the audience response. Think about the interest that's there to see this one man's life and what he did and what he accomplished in 33 short years. Who never owned anything of any significance. He never gathered up an army, so to speak, and took over and possessed any land. But his life changed the world. And so did his death and ultimately his resurrection. Think about it. In Matthew chapter 9, if you'll go back and look, Matthew's account of, a, of, the, of the same scene that we see in, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew 9, we see in verses 32 and 33, we're told that as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, were brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. If you go to chapter 12 and look at the, a similar response in verses 22 and 23. And there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and he saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the promised Savior of the world? Is this the person that we've been waiting for throughout our, 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 the history of our nation? 
See, as you look at this, in other words, he's saying, think about this. They were thinking about it. They were pondering it. They were dwelling on it. Back to Luke chapter 11 and verse 14, the crowd, the multitude marveled at what they saw. You know, I think it's hard for us to truly appreciate what Jesus did for this man. If you need, you know, in order to understand it, we need to recognize that in that particular culture, very few people read, very few people wrote, very few people communicate other than verbally. And so if you think about a person who can't speak, who cannot communicate, I can imagine the frustration at times in wanting to say something, to convey thoughts that he had, to express himself, to express his emotion, his emotions, to express his feelings, his thoughts, what he was going through. And he was captured, he was captive in this body that he couldn't communicate. You can only wonder how frustrating it could have been when you recognize that he couldn't write down what he was thinking. He couldn't email anybody. He couldn't write a letter. He couldn't get in a chat room. He couldn't do all the things that we take for granted that we can do. Maybe he could go like this, that, you know, he was hungry, but, you know, or maybe he wasn't feeling good. I, I don't know what sign language he came up with, but if you can't communicate in words, it gets very frustrating. And Jesus cast this demon out, and the man began to speak. And I can imagine the words that he spoke because you didn't have to beg him to praise Jesus. You didn't have to coerce him to praise God. You didn't have to lock him out if he was late to the next worship service. (laughs) You know, the first words that came out of his mouth, I'm sure, were words of praise and thanksgiving and glory. And we see it over and over again. Every time Jesus healed somebody, the multitudes gave glory to God because they saw God at work in Jesus. He praised him. He thanked him. It's so troubling sometimes to recognize that when, when people do good things for you and I, don't we have a tendency to want to go and thank, thank them? to praise them in some sort, to tell others of their goodness. Man, you know what? Guess what so-and-so did for me? It's like, you know, it's the most natural thing in the world to do. But in the culture in which we live, we're to praise one another. You know, we're to build one another up. We're to thank one another. We're to do all those things. I mean, if you ever stop and think about how many award shows are on TV in which, I mean, is is there any award show that's left that nobody's thought about yet? I mean, I've never seen an industry like Hollywood that has as many award shows to recognize and worship and praise themselves as, as that particular industry. There, and there's, there's nothing that I can think of that's left. And, and, and at the end of the day, they don't have a problem thanking their director, thanking their producer, thanking their writer, thanking their agent, thanking their agency, thanking this, that, and the other thing. Everybody sits there and goes, yes, thank them. They're wonderful people. But you stand there and say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People oh. You know, but, but, but why not? He's the author of life. He's given me all the gifts and the talents that I have in order to praise and, and to thank Him and to worship Him. Why would I not start there? And then I'll work my way down to all the people that have helped me along the way. But at the end of the day, I want to praise God first. Then I'll thank my doctors Then I'll thank those who have helped me. Then I'll thank all those because God has used those. But don't forget, you know what? Only God is the ultimate healer of all healers. He's the great physician. He's the one that can do what other people can't do. When they say it's impossible, he says, with God, all things are possible. So we praise him. And they were sitting there and they go, man, is this the son of God? Is this the son of David? Is this the promised one? That is an excellent question. And it's an appropriate question. It's a life-saving question to those who turn from sin and respond to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And they receive Him as Lord and Savior. Think about it. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that He is? It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what your parents say or your children say or your grandchildren say or your co-worker says or your neighbor says. It doesn't matter what they say. What matters is who is he to you? And I want you to think about it. Who is he? Think about his life. Think about what he's done. Think about his miracles, the signs, the wonders, the amazement. How the multitudes marveled. Think about his death on the cross. 
What was its purpose? Why did he come? What did he accomplish? I heard an ad on TV the other day for the movie Jesus. It's, you know, it's like all of a sudden, man, you know, you can't you put enough stuff on TV about Jesus because Jesus sells. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the, the Judas movie that was out. It sat in a box in Hollywood for two years because it stunk. And, uh, and they all knew it, but it was like, hey, throw it out there. Maybe we can get some advertisers now to finally market it. But there was a movie that's coming on Sunday. It's Jesus. And the advertisement was, consider the courage of one man. You know, how he went to the cross. The courage of going to the cross. What, what is that? The courage of going to the cross? It was God's plan that he went to the cross. It was by the foreknowledge of God that he went to the cross. It's the only way by which men can be saved that he went to the cross. It wasn't about a guy who sucked it up and, you know, and went, Ooh, I think I'm gonna, I can do this. <laughs> he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He, he, was, he, was, he was bent on going to the cross from the moment that he came into this world and even beforehand in all of eternity. He came for the purpose of seeking and saving that, us, which was lost in a moment of time when Adam sinned. He came to die on the cross. He told his disciples that, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I will be raised again three days from then and I will meet you in Galilee. That was his mission. That was his purpose. Who is he to you? What do you believe about Jesus? Some believe, they marveled, they wondered, but others put their trust, you know, while some put their trust in him, others did not. Notice the accusations that they made challenged his very authority. It says, but in contrast to the multitudes who marveled, in contrast to those who were sitting there saying to themselves, is this really the promised one of God? Is, is this the savior of the world? Is this the one that we've waited for? It says, but some of them said, hey, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. We see this huge but in Scripture where there was those in this group who marveled at what he did, who considered who he might have been, who trusted in him as Lord and Savior. And then there was this group over here who said, you know what? Everything he does, he does by the devil. His authority is from the devil. That's what we know about this guy. Their accusations challenges authority. There's this contrast that took place. Why did they slander him? I want you to recognize and understand what a severe indictment that is or accusation. They slandered Jesus by putting him in partnership with the devil. And the reason they slandered him, it's an age-old trick from hell. It takes the focus off of the facts. And it takes you down a little dog and pony show. They wanted to take the focus off of, explain to me how he does what he does. Explain to me how he has, he has healed all of these people. Explain to me how he has raised these people from the dead. Explain to me how he does these things. And they said, you know what, we, we don't want to talk about any of that. We want to talk about, he's from the devil. Well, no, explain to me, no, we're not going to talk about that. And see, what he was indicting, they were indicting him, they were saying in Hebrew culture, an alternative name for Satan was Beelzebul. And, the, and it means Baal, Baal the prince, and in the Old Testament, it's rendered Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies. Speaking of de the devil, and it's an appropriate name for Satan because he is the Lord of the Flies, he is the Lord of Garbage, he is the Lord of Dung. That's his name. And it was very appropriate. But when you affix that same name to Jesus, you slander him and you're blasphemous and you're saying that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil and that he is the Lord of garbage. And how wrong that was. It was calculated and it was immensely perverse and they knew what they were saying when they said it. And these folks revealed the depth of their depravity because they called truth a lie and they attributed the work of God to the devil. Now, not all of them were so inflammatory. If you look at verse 16, it says, but others, you know, they weren't quite in that camp. They weren't as mean-spirited, but they still didn't believe either. The other group said, yeah, you know what? We need to see a sign. You need to see a sign. Here's your sign. Who's that the guy who said that? Here's your sign. It's right in front of your face. What sign do you need? Let's see. Let's go through them again. Uh, he, he's raised a man that never walked so he could walk. 
He's taken, you know, we'll see in John 9, he opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. He, he, he took a withered hand and made it whole. Um, he healed various diseases of all sorts. He cast out demons on various occasions. Now, what exactly, what sign did you want him to do? And Jesus says about them, he said, you know what, the problem is the wicked generation in verse 29 of Luke 11. He says, and this generation is a wicked generation for it seeks for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah, which we'll refer to next week. And that will be next week's sermon. But what he's saying to them is this. You got all the signs that you need. There is no more signs left for you because you're not looking for the truth. And don't you see people like that and talk to people like that in life today? They see your life and they can't figure out what in the world's happened to you. And you say, hey, all I know is this. I turned from sin and I turned to Christ and I asked for his forgiveness. And I believe that he died on the cross for me and he rose from the dead and I received him as my Lord and Savior. And my life has never been the same since. Old things pass away. All things become new. I'm no longer the same person I used to be. And that explains to you why I am where I am doing what I'm doing and not doing the things I used to do. And they say to you, well, you know what? I need another sign. What, what other sign do you need? Here, let me introduce you. You know, we're all God's signs stand up. No, I'm just kidding. You know, we're, we're, we're all signs. We're a shouting, screaming, living, breathing, walking testimony to the grace and mercy of God because none of us who have trusted in Christ are the same as we used to be. We are walking signs. We are light in darkness. We are salt that creates a spiritual thirst in a world that is in rebellion against God. And they're saying to him, oh, we want another sign. You're not getting any more signs. The greatest sign that God has given the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What other sign could God come up with than a person coming back from the dead, being witnessed by hundreds and multitudes, their lives changed, never the same, they have turned the world upside down. What other sign does God have to give you? And then we got people out there all day long saying, oh God, please give me a sign. If, if you heal me this cancer, then I'll know you're real. You know, and we're always cutting a deal with God. We're always trying to negotiate with God. You know, if you heal me of this, then, oh, then maybe I'll believe you are real. If you get me this promotion, if you get me this job, if you do this, if you do that, if you do this for me, rub the lamp, here we go. Okay, God, you do this, and you know what? And then maybe, just maybe, I'll believe in you. And let me tell you what Jesus has to say to you. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. And they said this because they were testing him. From that rebuke we get this. Think about it. What other sign does God need to show you that he is real? The heavens declare the handiwork of God. Go out and look at what God's created. Look around you at people, the complexity of our fearfully and wonderfully made bodies where you've got people who spend a lifetime studying a toe and they don't know how a toe works. And I'm not making fun of a toe because if your toe hurts, you know how serious it is. But it's only about the only thing left on me that's still working right. So it's kind of like you go, wow, a toe, you know, and you study a toe all your life. Look at that, toeology. I know, it's podiatry. Help me, spare me. Of the emails and letters, save yourself some time. But, um, <laughs> but as you go through it, it's like, you know, we, we think about it. You know, we, we learn to take God at his word. You know, the man who was, was in Haiti said, let me go back and warn my family. This is a real place. And Jesus said, they're not going to believe you. They haven't believed the law and the prophets. They don't believe the very word of God. Why are they going to believe you? Because they'll make up some stupid story about where you were, that you fell off the deep end, that you're, you know, you're high on something, whatever it is. They're not going to believe that you actually came back from the dead. If they don't take God at his word, why would they believe fallible human beings who've always lied, cheated, stolen, and, and, and led one another astray? So if you don't believe God, you're not going to believe one another. Very simple. From this, we learn to submit to God's will. From this we learn to examine the facts and the evidence. From this we learn in light of Scripture not to allow Jesus to cause us to stumble because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. 
Jesus' accusers were in significant eternal danger. And the religious establishment's rejection of Jesus was so insulting and so outrageous that humanly speaking, I don't know about you, but I don't know how much compassion and mercy I'd have on somebody who pointed their finger at me and said, you know what, you're in cahoots with the devil. But you know what, that's not our God. They were on the brink of eternal damnation. And Jesus continued to reason with them. He continued to love them. He continued to cause them to think. He cared about their soul. As one man wrote, he said, God's finger was touching them. God was speaking to them. What they had just witnessed was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the power of God. Now they must make life's ultimate judgment. And they were at the point of making a decision which, once deliberately made, would be irreversible. It would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit. Call ultimate good evil. Call truth himself a liar. And God himself has no further evidence left. There's nothing further left to say. God is then reduced to silence. My prayer and my hope for you is that God is not reduced to silence in your life because of your continual rejection of the evidence, of the facts, of the truth of who Jesus is. They were teetering on the edge of an eternity of judgment and Jesus wasn't going to let them go without a loving fight. And his answers confronted their thoughts. Notice in verse 17 through 19. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, then how shall his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Now, as we read this, let's not go too quickly over this attribute of God revealed in Jesus. The Bible tells us that he knew their thoughts. You know, an attribute by definition is a property intrinsic to its subject and by which the subject is distinguished or identified. What distinguishes God from all others are his attributes which identify him as God and unique. We know from scripture of his simplicity that he's incomplex and he's indivisible. We know from the word of God of his unity. Hear, O Israel, know that God is one. And he manifests himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches that. But there is only one God. The Bible teaches of his infinity, that he's without termination, and of his eternity, that he's free from the succession of time, of his immutability, his unchanging nature. And that's why God's word is the same yesterday and today and forever, because God doesn't change and neither does his word. That's why there's nothing further to add and there's no addendums or amendments to the word of God. We have it in its entirety. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know of His omnipresence. We know that He is everywhere. We know of His sovereignty, that He is ruler above all things. And here we see of His omniscience. If you'll turn back to Psalm 139 in verses 1 through 6, Scripture is very clear about the omniscience or all-knowing God, that God knows all things. In Psalm 139, starting with verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and of my lying down and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And notice, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is too high and I cannot attain it. I don't understand it. I don't understand, God, how you know everything. How you know my thoughts before I even speak a word. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. And the reason I bring this up is because we know God by His attributes. And one of the attributes clearly spoken of in the Bible is that God knows all things. God knows what you're thinking, even as you sit here today. And that's why the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword is alive, reaches you right where you are because God knows where you are. And He's speaking to you differently than the person next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you. He knows us. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows our thoughts before we say a word. And God knows all things. And I don't want you to miss this because the Word of God is clear. And Jesus knew their thoughts. Think about it. The conclusion is simple. If God knows all things, and Jesus knows all things, Jesus is clearly God. Just one more evidence through Scripture that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Jesus knew their thoughts, and He addressed their thoughts. They didn't have to speak. He knew what they were thinking. It's interesting how many times in life that as we're sharing the truth of God's Word with others, having been there ourselves and having spoke to enough people, it doesn't, you know, it's not that hard to be sensitive to God's leading in our life when we're sharing something with somebody and we can see it in their eyes and we can kind of almost hear their wheels turning in their head to know exactly what it is that they're struggling. And it's not because we're so, you know, we're so sharp. It's because the Spirit of God reveals to us, hey, you know what? This is where they're struggling. This is what you need to say. This is where you need to go with this conversation. This is what it's all about. And people go, hey, did, you, did, did someone call you? You know, did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? No, you know what? God knows you. And as long as his word is going out, then it's God who's dealing with you. Don't give me any credit for any of this because I, I don't have anything to do with it. All that I want to be is a faithful messenger of God's word and allow God to do what he's going to do in your life. It's not about me and you or you and the person next to you or you and the person invited you. It's all about you and God. Who do you say Jesus is? Think about it. What conclusions have you come to and why? See, Jesus knows the thoughts of men. Back to Luke 11 where he answers their accusations. He confronts their thoughts with three logical, reasonable arguments for them to chew on, to think about, and also to finally, hopefully, take some appropriate action. Number one, their conclusion denies a very basic principle. Notice what he says in verse 17 through 19. The conclusion, their conclusion denies a basic principle, and that is this. Jesus' detractors came and said basically this. Jesus is in partnership with the devil. I said, well, wait a minute. If he's in partnership with the devil, then how in the world and why would he cast out a demon? And let's say for argument's sake that they go, well, you know what, though? But that was all part of the strategy. Because if Satan would allow one demon to be cast out of a person and think that Jesus is the Messiah when he's really not, and he's a false Messiah, and all these multitudes that marveled and began to worship and praise Jesus as being the Savior, if he wasn't the Savior, oh, wouldn't that be a good strategy? Well, it would be, except for there's one problem. All of Jesus' ministry was devoted in stamping out and destroying the works of the devil. On four different occasions, he's cast out demons. Many people were brought to him, he cast out demons. The argument is very simple. What he's saying is, you know what? A house divided against can't stand. If I'm working with Satan, but I'm throwing out demons and destroying the works of Satan, and because everybody attributed disease at that time to, the, to sin in someone's life, and the reason that people were blind was because they sinned, the reason that the guy was paralyzed because they sinned, the reason the guy's hand withered up was because there was sin in his life, there, there was always an explanation and understanding, and in some ways what they were saying is true. Disease entered the world because of sin, but there is direct sin re related to direct sin, and there is sin that comes just with being in fallen humanity. And so what he's saying to them is, look, if I'm casting out demons, how can a house divided against itself stand? That's why in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, he says, what fellowship does darkness have with light? What fellowship does God, Christ, have with the devil? There's none. It's incompatible. So he's saying, you don't, you don't make any sense. Think about it. I'm casting out demons and you're, getting, you're attributing that work to the devil? That doesn't make sense. He's, then he'll destroy himself. See, the point that Jesus makes here is that why would Satan fight against himself and divide in his own kingdom, duh? Think about it. You guys don't make any sense. 
But He reasoned with them. He loved them and gently with instruction and kindness and mercy. He, he showed them through the Word of God and through the reasoning and the logic and the ability that God gives human beings to think. He's saying, think about what you just said you believe. See, He went on to ask him this question. He said, oh, by the way, and if I cast out demons by the devil, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because the Jews knew there were Jews who were casting out demons. And they all knew the only way you could cast out a demon was by the authority of God himself. And so what Jesus said to them is, look, I guess that if I'm of the devil, so are your people. Oh, wait, no, that's not what we meant. But that's what you said. You ever see somebody that, that, that gets themselves in trouble like that? It's like, no, really, the bottom line is this. We just hate you. And we're trying to figure out some ways to accuse you of something... And obviously, this isn't one of our better attempts. <laughs> right? Think about it. So Jesus goes on, and he says, but look, in verse 20, but, and I love this, but in contrast to what you just said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. The religious skeptics were seeking a sign when there was already a huge sign before them. He said, hey, I cast out demons by the finger of God. And this allusion to the finger of God would mean a lot more to them than probably to most of us. And you need to turn back to the book of Exodus to see why Jesus chose that particular phrase to use before the religious leaders. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. As God's mighty hand was working and showing signs to Pharaoh so that, they would, so that he would allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. We're told in verse 16 of chapter 8 of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. And struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats through all of the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now notice, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Jesus is merciful and gracious and patient and filled with instruction. And those religious leaders who prided themselves on knowing the Old Testament, when Jesus said, if I cast out by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is upon you, they would have gone back to the finger of God. That's the that same word that we find in the Old Testament as far as God's hand and the miracles and the signs in Egypt that pointed to Pharaoh to say, listen, let those people go. If you know what's good for you, let them go. But I want you to notice the flip side of it is this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And all they had to do was project the end of the story as Pharaoh followed Israel into the, into the sea to his demise. He was so callous to the signs of God. He was so hardened his heart to God and the evidence that God laid out that he followed them into his own doom. Men and women don't miss this. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is saying exactly who he is. The same God of the Old Testament who said even before Abraham existed, I am. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And he said to them, if you do not accept and believe this, if you do not look at the evidence with an open heart and an open mind, and if you're not seeking God, your heart will become hardened just like Pharaoh's to your ultimate utter demise. You will be destroyed like he was destroyed. And every person who has a hard heart to God will go into an eternity condemned and damned before God and will suffer eternally for 
turning uh, for turning their eyes away from the evidence for hardening their own heart against who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. You have got to have an open heart and an open mind. I am warning you by the authority of Scripture, do not be deceived, do not be fooled, do not be frightened to consider the claims of Jesus because he is the only one who can save you from your sins. Period. And don't let your pride get in the way. Because pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit goes before destruction. And it was pride that led Pharaoh to be destroyed for all of eternity. It is pride that is, that is, that is leading these men, these religious leaders, to be destroyed for all of eternity. Because they are not open. They are not open or willing to examine the evidence that God has laid out. They are not willing to hear the words of God. Jesus goes on to say... As we look at this, that his conquest displays the power of God. Their accusation was an admission of his power. They saw what he did. They admitted he was powerful, but they were just trying to say the power had to do with the devil. And he say, no, the power is the finger of God. This is God. And the multitudes marveled and gave glory to God. But the skeptics and the cynics and those unbelieving and those hard of heart, they didn't want to give God His due. They didn't want to give God His glory. They didn't want to give God His praise because they didn't want God messing up their thing. They had their own life. They had their own will. They had their own direction. They had their own plans. They didn't want any God messing up what they had been comfortable with in life. The word of God says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In John 12, 31 through 33, he said that he came to destroy the works of Satan. In 1 John 3, 8 and 1 John 4, 4, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush his head. One of the first prophecies of Jesus Christ is found in Genesis where the Satan or the devil would bruise his heel on the cross, but Jesus would crush his head. And it was by the cross that he set the captives free. It was by the cross and his resurrection that he led hosts of captives into God's presence. It was by the cross and his resurrection that you and I can be free from the captivity of sin and the darkness and and, and the grip of Satan in our life. It is by the cross and his resurrection that those of us who turn from, from sin and turn to Christ and believe in him will be free. And he will destroy in your life what he came to destroy for all of humanity is the work of the devil and sin that binds us. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and they admitted he was powerful. They just didn't want to admit it was by the power of God. They admitted what he did. And yet they didn't really understand it because they were blind to seeing it because they chose not to see. Having eyes they couldn't see and having ears they couldn't hear. As we look at this, instead of slandering Jesus, those men should have sought his forgiveness. He's saying to them and saying to you who may be here and do not believe yet, he's saying, think, think about it. And then act appropriately. And the last thing is we see not everyone in the crowd were as hostile towards Jesus as those who accused him of being in partnership with the devil. Nevertheless, they felt no need to openly align themselves with Christ. They wanted to remain neutral. And if there's anybody out there who wants to remain neutral, let me, as clearly as I can, read this verse. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters you're either in or you're out as i like to say you're either a saint or you ain't you're either a child of the devil or you've been adopted into the family of god because we're born into the world in the family of the devil darkened from the things of god excluded from the mind of god we sin because we have a sin nature we don't choose to sin because that's what we choose to do we choose to sin because that's in our nature and it goes hand in hand we don't become sinners because we've sinned we're sinners and that's why we sin and we come into the world alienated from god all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god And unless you've turned from sin and turned to Christ and trusted in His death on the cross and His resurrection for you, your sins, and received Him as Savior, the Bible says that you are against Him. But for those of us who have believed in His name, we become children of God and we're adopted in the family of God and we are for Him. Are you for Jesus? 
or are you against them? There is no neutral ground. You're either gathering or you're scattering. You're either professing His name before men, you're sharing the gospel with those who need to hear of the good news of God's love in Christ, or you're not. You're either living a life that's not hypocritical, you're living a life that is commensurate with who we are in Christ, to the point where people see how you live, they want to know what you're all about. And by doing so, you help gather. If you are a Christian and you're living a hypocrisy-filled life and you are causing others to stumble over Jesus because they don't understand Him, because they don't understand you, then I would say to you, repent from that sin and confess and agree with God that it's wrong because you know what? You're not gathering, you're helping to scatter. And we're here to be gatherers and not scatterers. The spiritual reality has not changed. Every man, every woman is either for Christ or against Him. Now let me even get more personal. Are you for Him? Are you against Him? Is your life dedicated to gathering or scattering? Do you encourage those who profess their faith before men? Or do you try to get them to shut up and keep it calm and keep it low-key? And, you know, that's not something we should be talking about in public. And I say to you, that philosophy is from the pit of hell and not from the Word of God. Because we are to be His witnesses. We are to profess Him before men and He will confess us before His heavenly Father. It's not an option. It's a command. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody who is living in darkness? Isn't it about time that you and I commit to reaching this world with the Word of God? Because it's only God's Word that can convict men of their need for forgiveness. See, they were trying to be neutral, and Jesus answered that once and for all. You're either in or you're out. You're for me, you're against me. You're a gatherer or you're a scatterer. There's no middle ground. And as the chill of those words settled in, Jesus related a grim story that we'll close with, and it reveals the consequences of rejecting Jesus. We're told in verse 24 that Jesus told this story. He said, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Great. Cleaned it up. Goes out, takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And what he's saying is, listen carefully to the consequence of rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior, specifically rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God who convicts us of sin and our need for forgiveness and the identity of Jesus. He's saying this, self-reformation without spiritual regeneration, you're still lost before God. In fact, you're worse off than you were before because you've bought into the lie. I don't know how many people I meet that they say, you know what, hey, uh, I'm going to stop drinking. I say, that's good. Good for you. You'll probably be a better husband and father, probably be a better wife and a mother. You'll probably be a better employer, probably a better employee. I'm going to quit doing drugs. Hey, I commend you and I encourage you to do that because it'll probably be a really good thing for you to do to stop doing those things. I'm going to commit to not lying anymore or cheating or stealing. I'm going to commit to, you know, not having sex outside of marriage. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make these commitments. I'm going, to, I'm going to clean myself up. Hey, I applaud you. That's good. And there's probably a whole bunch of people in your life that would say, good, man. You know, we've been hoping that you do that. But let me tell you this. Don't ever deceive self-reformation with spiritual regeneration. Because that's the, that's the message of the story. The demon went out. The guy cleaned up his life and thought, wow, you know what? I'm going to clean myself up. And that demon came back with seven more that were more miserable than him and found even a better place. Because the bottom line is this, that nature abhors a vacuum. And if there's an emptiness in your life, you will fill it with something. And what God is saying, I want to fill your life. I want to come in. I stand at the door and knock. 
And if you'll just hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Let my presence fill your life. Because if I don't fill your life, you will fill it with something else. And that's the pursuit of this world. I fill it with my job. I fill it with my education. I fill it with my hobbies. I fill it with material things. I fill it with one relationship after another. I fill it with booze. I fill it with drugs. I fill it with everything because I'm empty and there's an emptiness inside and I'm trying to quench it and nothing is working. And so when none of those things work, we say to ourselves, well, I'm going to stop doing those things and then maybe that void will be filled. No, the reason that you did all those things because you had a void to begin with and none of those things filled it and getting rid of those things aren't going to fill it again positively. You're just opening yourself up for something else. Jesus said, I come to give life and give life abundantly. He says, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone has a hunger and a thirst and a void in their life, and we all do, and it's not if and if you do, it is if and since you do. Come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. We must be born again. We cannot clean up our own life to the satisfaction of God's forgiveness. We can clean up our life and get along with one another. Don't mistake what I'm saying. And I commend people that do it. But you cannot clean up your life to find God's forgiveness. It is by grace we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us will ever boast. In closing, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and then Titus. Jesus was very clear, and he warned these religious leaders. He said, you know what? Trying to live a good life isn't going to get it done. Self-reformation without spiritual regeneration is a formula for eternal disaster. You are still lost. You are still dead in your sins. You are still in need of a Savior. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures... Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Well, what was the change? Did they give up these things? No. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, the Word is became manifest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When God's love appeared, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... When Jesus Christ appeared, the world saw God's love. And he saved us, not on the basis of our own efforts or deeds, not on self-reformation, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by God's grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Folks, don't miss it. There is no way we can clean up our house and ever get it tidy enough for God. It is a work of God, not by human will, not by human effort. It is by God's grace you and I are saved through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, and faith and trust in His word that says, if you believe in Him, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you believed in Jesus as your only Savior? Not Jesus plus works, not works plus Jesus, no other formula. Have you put your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone? You must be born again. You must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the simplicity and yet the complexity of what you have to say. God, it is my prayer that we think about it, that we meditate on it. God, that you don't leave any of us alone until we have come to grips with what you have to say. And make a deliberate choice 
to either be for you or against you. To trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior from sin. To trust in His death and the power of His resurrection. To receive Him as Savior. God, it is my prayer that everyone who hears my voice is brought to a point today of making that decision. God, may we be reminded of the warning of Pharaoh who was brought to a point of decision many times as to whether to believe your word and to see your miraculous hand, the fingers of God, as your word tells us. And yet he chose to continue to harden his heart before you, ultimately to his damnation. God, I pray that nobody here ever makes that eternally damning decision and that they'll understand today is the day of the Lord, today is the day of the Spirit, today as they hear your voice, They will turn from sin and they will trust in Christ as their Savior. God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection is your only path to forgiveness. And as best I know how, I ask for your forgiveness. I trust in him, I trust in your word, and I receive him today as my Savior. God, I want to be for Jesus, I want to be in your family. I want to be forgiven. And I thank you that you hear my prayer and that you know my thoughts and you know my heart and that you've adopted adopted me even at this moment into your family. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and I praise you and I worship you as my God and Savior. Amen.